Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Stories of Light. I am so excited to be here with you today. And uh, today we're continuing the theme of very magical stories. Uh, I know we in the past did, you know, magical stories with, you know, Confucius and dragons and Kuan Yin. And, you know, today I really felt called to to shift like a whole new world to a whole new continent. And I really wanted to actually tell a French fairy tale. Uh, and so the one that I picked, it's actually, uh, it's featured in a book uh, by Andrew Lang called The Blue Fairy Book. And it's originally, I'm going to get her name right. This is originally a fairy tale from, I believe it's six, it's like around this, it's around like 1650, the writer was born. Her name is Madame de Alnoy. I feel like I have to make like an, an intense caveat for I probably always mispronounce everyone's names, but I do it with such love. Uh, so yes, this is originally a beautiful story. Uh, it's the original Goldilocks. And no, this is not the Goldilocks where you think of Goldilocks and the three bears. This is a very, very beautiful story. And uh, I'm just really passionate about this story because it's just so magical. And I don't want to give anything away uh, except to say that you know, I, I I love fairy tales because I think they teach us to remember the magic that is all around us. And I feel that, you know, in in regular life, you know, sometimes we may become, you know, disillusioned or, you know, things become really monotonous. And then when you hear a story like this, it just, the tale is one of such great delight. And I just am so excited to share this with you today. So I'm actually going to read. I wasn't sure at first, I was wondering, should I try to like tell the story? Um, and then I felt, you know, very called to actually just read this to you because it is gorgeous. And I just feel like Andrew Lang, I just cannot, I can't improve upon this because it's just so beautifully, beautifully written. So I invite you to just, you know, you know, sit back, get comfy, and I'm going to read this beautiful story for you today. So the story of Pretty Goldilocks. Once upon a time, there was a princess who was the prettiest creature in the world. And because she was so beautiful, and because her hair was like the finest gold, and waved and rippled nearly to the ground, she was called Pretty Goldilocks. She always wore a crown of flowers and her dresses were embroidered with diamonds and pearls, and everybody who saw her fell in love with her. Now, one of the neighbors was a young king who was not married. He was rich and handsome, and when he heard all there was to know about pretty Goldilocks, though he had never seen her, he fell so deeply in love with her that he could neither eat nor drink. So he resolved to send an ambassador to ask her hand in marriage. He had a splendid carriage made for his ambassador and gave him more than a hundred horses and a hundred servants and told him to be sure and bring the princess back with him. After he had started, nothing else was talked of at court and the king felt so sure that the princess would consent that he set his people to work at pretty dresses and splendid furniture that they might be ready by the time she came. Meanwhile, the ambassador arrived at the princess's palace and delivered his little message. But whether she happened to be crossed that day or whether the compliment did not please her is not known. She only answered that she was very much obliged to the king, but she had no wish to be married. 
the ambassador set off sadly on his homeward way, bringing all the king's presence back with him. For the princess was too well brought up to accept the pearls and diamonds when she would not accept the king. She had only kept 25 English pins that he might not be vexed. When the ambassador reached the city where the king was waiting impatiently, everybody was very much annoyed with him for not bringing the princess. And the king cried like a baby and nobody could console him. Now, there was at the court a young man who was more clever and handsome than anyone else. He was called Charming and everyone loved him, excepting a few envious people who were angry at his being the king's favorite and knowing all the state secrets. He happened to one day be with some people who were speaking of the ambassador's return and saying that his going to the princess had not done much good. When Charming said rashly, if the king had sent me to Princess Goldilocks, I am sure she would have come back with me. His enemies at once went to the king and said, you will hardly believe, sire, what Charming has had the audacity to say, that if he had been sent to Princess Goldilocks, that she would certainly have come back with him. He seems to think that he is so much handsomer than you that the princess would have fallen in love with him and followed him willingly. The king was very angry when he heard this. Ha, said he, does he laugh at my unhappiness and think himself more fascinating than I am? Go and let him be shut up in my great tower to die of hunger. So the king's guards went to fetch Charming, who had thought no more of his rash speech and carried him off to prison with great cruelty. The poor prisoner had only a straw, a little straw for his bed, and but a little stream of water, which flowed through the tower, or else he would have died of thirst. One day, when he was in despair, he said to himself, how can I have offended the king? I am his most faithful subject and have done nothing against him. The king one day chanced though to be passing the tower and recognized the voice of his former favorite. He stopped to listen in spite of Charming's enemies who had tried to persuade him to have nothing more to do with the traitor. But the king said, be quiet. I wish to hear what he says. And then he opened the tower door and called Charming who came very sadly and kissed the king hand saying, what have I done sire to deserve this cruel treatment? You mocked me and my ambassador said the king. And you said that if I had sent you for Princess Goldilocks, you would certainly have brought her back. It is quite true, sire, replied Charming. I should have drawn such a picture of you and represented your good qualities in such a way that I am certain the princess would have found you irresistible. But I cannot see what there is in that to make you angry. The king could not see any cause for anger either when the matter was presented to him in this light. And he began to frown very fiercely at the couriers who had misrepresented his favorite. So he took Charming back to the palace with him. And after seeing that he had a very good supper, said to him, you know that I love pretty Goldilocks as much as ever. Her refusal has not made any difference to me, but I don't know how to make her change her mind. I really should like to send you to see if you can persuade her to marry me. Charming replied, that he was perfectly willing to go 
and would set out the very next day. But you must wait so I can get a grand escort for you, said the king. But Charming said that he only wanted a good horse to ride. And the king, who was delighted at his being ready to start so promptly, gave him letters to give to the princess and bade him good speed. It was on a Monday morning that he set out all alone on his errand, thinking of nothing but how he could persuade the princess Goldilocks to marry the king. He had a writing book in his pocket and whenever any happy thought struck him, he dismounted from his horse and sat down under the tree to put it into paper, preparing it for the princess before he should forget it. One day, when he had started at the very earliest dawn and was riding over a great meadow, he suddenly had a capital idea and springing from his horse, he sat down under a willow tree, which grew by a little river. When he had written it down, he was looking around himself, pleased to find himself in such a pretty place. When all at once he saw a great golden carp lying, gasping and exhausted upon the grass. In leaping after little flies, this great carp had thrown herself high upon the bank where she had lain till she was nearly dead. Charming had pity upon this fish. And though he couldn't help thinking that she had been very nice for dinner, he picked her up gently and put her back in the water. As soon as Dame Carp felt the refreshing coolness of the water, she sank down joyfully to the bottom of the river. Then, swimming up to the bank quite boldly, she said, I thank you, Charming, for the kindness you have done me. You have saved my life. One day I will repay you. So saying, she sank down into the water again, leaving Charming greatly astonished at her politeness. Another day, as he journeyed on, he saw a raven in great distress. The poor bird was closely pursued by an eagle, which would soon have eaten it up, had not Charming quickly fitted an arrow to his bow and shot the eagle dead. The raven perched upon a tree very joyfully. Charming, said he, it was very generous of you to rescue a poor raven. I am not ungrateful. Someday I will repay you. Charming thought it was very nice of the raven to say so and went on his way. Before the sun rose, he found himself in a thick wood where it was too dark for him to see his path. And here he heard an owl crying out as if it were in despair. Hark, said he, that must be an owl in great trouble. I am sure it has gotten into a snare. And he began to hunt about and presently found a great net, which some bird catchers had spread the night before. What a pity it is that men do nothing but torment and persecute poor creatures, which never do them any harm, said he. And he took out his knife and cut the cords of the net. And the owl flitted away into the darkness. But then turning with one flicker of her wings, she came back to Charming and said, it does not need many words to tell you how great a service you have done me. I was caught. In a few minutes, the Fowlers would have been here. Without your help, I should have been killed. I am grateful, and one day I will repay you. These three adventures were the only ones of any consequence that befell Charming upon his journey, and he made all the haste he could to reach the palace of the Princess Goldilocks. 
When he arrived, he thought everything he saw delightful and magnificent. Diamonds were as plentiful as pebbles. And the gold and silver, the beautiful dresses, the sweet meats, and the pretty things that were everywhere quite amazed him. He thought to himself, if the princess consents to leave all this and come with me to marry the king, he may think himself lucky. Then he dressed himself carefully in a rich brocade with scarlet and white plumes and drew a splendid embroidered scarf over his shoulder and looking as, as gay and graceful as possible, he presented himself at the door of the palace, carrying in his arm a tiny pretty dog, which he had bought on the way. The guards saluted him respectfully and a messenger was sent to the princess to announce the arrival of Charming as ambassador of her neighbor, the king. Charming, said the princess, the name promises well. I have no doubt that he is good looking and fascinates everybody. Indeed he does, madam, said all of her maids together in one breath. We saw him from the window um, where we were spinning flax and we could do nothing but look at him as long as he was in sight. Well, to be sure, said the princess, that's how you amuse yourselves. Um, looking at strangers out of the window. Uh, be quick and give me my blue satin embroidered dress and comb out my golden hair. Let somebody make me fresh garlands of flowers and give me high-heeled shoes and my fan and tell them to sweep my hall and my throne for I want everyone to say that I am really pretty Goldilocks. You can imagine how all her maids scurried this way and that to make the princess ready and how in their haste they knocked their heads together and hindered each other till she thought they would never have done. However, at last, they led her into the gallery of mirrors that she might assure herself that nothing was lacking in her appearance. And then she mounted her throne of gold, ebony, and ivory, while her ladies took their guitars and began to sing softly. Then Charming was led in, and was struck with astonishment and admiration, so much so that he could not say a word. But presently he took courage and delivered his message, bravely ending by begging the princess to spare him the disappointment of going back without her. Sir Charming, answered she, all the reasons you have given me are very good ones. And I assure you that I should have more pleasure in obliging you than anyone else. But you must know that a month ago, as I was walking by the river with my ladies, I took off my glove. And as I did so, a ring that I was wearing slipped off my finger and rolled into the water. As I valued it more than my kingdom, you may imagine how vexed I was at losing it. And I vowed to never listen to any proposal of marriage unless the ambassador first brought me back my ring. So now you know what is expected of you. For if you talk for 15 days and 15 nights, you could not change my mind. Charming was very surprised by her answer, but he bowed low to the princess and begged her to accept the embroidered scarf and the tiny dog he had brought with him. But she answered that she did not want any presents and that he was to remember what she had just told him. When he got back to his lodging, he went to bed without eating any supper and his little dog, who was called Frisk, couldn't eat any either, but came down and lay close to him. All night, Charming sighed and lamented, how am I to find a ring 
that fell into the river a month ago, said he. It is useless to try. The princess must have told me to do it on purpose, knowing it was impossible. And then he sighed again. Frisk heard him and said, my dear master, don't despair. The luck may change. You are too good not to be happy. Let us go down to the river as soon as it is light. But Charming only gave him two little pats and said nothing. And very soon after, he fell asleep. At the first glimmer of dawn, Frisk began to jump about. And when he had waked Charming, they went out together, first into the garden and then down to the river's bank where they wandered up and down. Charming was thinking sadly of having to go back unsuccessful when he heard someone calling, Charming, Charming. He looked all about him and thought he must be dreaming as he could not see anybody. Then he walked on and the voice called again, Charming, Charming, who calls me? He said, he asked Frisk. Frisk, who was very small and could look closely into the water, cried out, I see a golden carp coming. And sure enough, there was the great carp who said to Charming, you saved my life in the meadow by the willow tree. And I promised that I would repay you. Take this. It is Princess Goldilocks ring. Charming took the ring out of Dame Carp's mouth, thanking her a thousand times. And he and Tiny Frisk went straight to the palace where someone told the princess that he was asking to see her. Ah, Poor fellow, said she, he must have come to say goodbye, finding it impossible to do as I asked. So in came Charming, who presented her with the ring and said, Madam, I have done your bidding. Will it please you to marry my master? When the princess saw her ring brought back to her unhurt, she was so astonished that she thought she must be dreaming. Truly charming, said she, you must be the favorite of some fairy or you could never have found it. Madam, answered he, I was helped by nothing but my desire to obey your wishes. Since you are so kind, said she, perhaps you will do me another service. For till it is done, I will never be married. There is a prince not far from here, whose name is Galifron, who once wanted to marry me. But when I refused, he uttered the most terrible threats against me and vowed that he would lay waste my country. But what could I do? I couldn't marry a frightful giant as tall as a tower who eats up people as a monkey eats chestnuts and who walks and talks so loud that everyone who listens to him becomes quite deaf. Nevertheless, he does not cease to persecute me and to kill my subjects. So before I can listen to your proposal, you must kill him and bring me his head. Charming was very dismayed at this command, but he answered, very well, princess, I will fight this Galifron. I believe that he will kill me, but at any rate, I shall die in your defense. And the princess was frightened and said everything she could think of to prevent Charming from fighting the giant, but it was of no use. And he went out to arm himself suitably. Then taking a little frisk with him, he mounted his horse and set out for Galifron's country. Everyone he met told him what a terrible giant Galifron was and that nobody dared go near him. And the more he heard, the more frightened he grew. First tried to encourage him by saying, while you are fighting the giant, dear master, I will go and bite his heels. And when he stoops down to look at me, you can kill him. Um, 
Charming praised his little dog's plan, but knew this help would not do much good. At last, he drew near the giant's castle and saw to his horror that every path that led to it was strewn with bones. Before long, he saw Galifron coming. His head was higher than the tallest trees, and he sang in a terrible voice, Bring out your little boys and girls. Pray do not stay to do their curls, for I shall eat so very many. I shall not know if they have any. Thereupon, Charming sang out as loud as he could to the same tune. Come out and meet the valiant Charming, who finds you not at all alarming. Although he is not very tall, he's big enough to make you fall. The rhymes were not very correct. But you see, he'd made them up so quickly that as a miracle, they were not worse. Especially as he was horribly frightened all the time. When Galifron heard these words, he looked all about him and saw Charming standing, sword in hand. This put the giant into a terrible rage. And he aimed a blow at Charming with his huge iron club, which would certainly have killed him if it had reached him. But at that instant, a raven perched upon the giant's head and pecking with its strong beak and beating with its great wings so confused and blinded the giants that all his blows fell helplessly upon the air. Charming rushing in gave him several strokes with his sharp sword so that he fell to the ground. Whereupon Charming cut off his head before he knew anything about it and the raven from a tree close by croaked out, you see, I have not forgotten the good turn you did me in killing the eagle. Today, I think I have fulfilled my promise of repaying you. Indeed, said Charming, I owe you more gratitude than you ever owed me. And then he mounted his horse and rode off with Galifron's head. When he reached the city, the people ran after him in the crowds, crying, Behold the brave Charming who has killed the giant. And their shouts reached the princess's ear. But she dared not ask what was happening, for fear she would hear that Charming himself had been killed. But very soon he arrived at the palace with the giant's head, of which she was still terrified, though it could no longer do her any harm. Princess, said Charming, I have killed your enemy. I hope you will now consent to marry the king, my master. Oh dear, no, said the princess, not until you have brought me some water from Gloomy Cavern. Not far from here, there is a deep cave, the entrance to which is guarded by two dragons with fiery eyes who will not allow anyone to pass them. When you get into the cavern, you will find an immense hole which you must go down and it's full of toads and snakes. At the bottom of this hole, there is another cave in which rises the fountain of health and beauty. It is some of this water that I really must have. Everything it touches becomes wonderful. The beautiful things will always remain beautiful and the ugly things become lovely. If one is young, one never grows old. And one if, if one is old, one becomes young. You see, Charming, I could not leave my kingdom without taking some of it with me. Princess, said he, you at least can never need this water. But I am an unhappy ambassador whose death you desire. Where you send me, I will go, though I know I shall never return. As the Princess Goldilocks showed no sign of relenting, he started with his little dog for the gloomy cavern. Everyone he met on the way said, what a pity, 
that a handsome young man should throw away his life so carelessly. He is going to the cavern alone, though if he had a hundred men with him, he could not succeed. Why does the princess ask impossibilities? Charming said nothing, but was very sad. When he was near the top of a hill, he dismounted to let his horse graze, while Frisk amused himself by chasing flies. Charming knew he could not be far from Gloomy Cavern, and on looking about him, he saw a black, hideous rock from which came a thick smoke, followed in a moment by one of the dragons with fire blazing from his mouth and eyes. His body was yellow and green, his claws scarlet, and his tail was so long that it lay in a hundred coils. Frisk was so terrified of the sight that he did not know where to hide. Charming, quite determined to get to the water or die, now drew his sword and taking the crystal flask, which Princess Goldilocks had given him to fill, he said to Frisk, I am sure that I shall never come back from this expedition. When I am dead, go to the princess and tell her that her errand has cost me my life. Then find the king, my master, and relate all my adventures to him. As he spoke, he heard a voice calling, charming, charming, who calls me, said he. Then he saw an owl sitting in a hollow tree who said to him, you saved my life when I was caught in the net. Now I can repay you. Trust me with the flask, for I know all the ways of the gloomy cavern and can fill it from the fountain of beauty. Charming was only too happy to give the owl the flask and she flitted into the cavern quite unnoticed by the dragon. And after some time returned with the flask filled to the very brim with sparkling water. Charming thanked her with all his heart and joyfully hastened back to the town. He went straight to the palace and gave the flask to the princess who had no further objections to make. So she thanked Charming and ordered that preparations should be made for her departure. And they soon set out together. The princess found Charming such an agreeable companion that she sometimes said to him, why didn't we stay where we were? I could have made you king and we should have been so happy. But Charming only answered, I could not have done anything that would have vexed my master so much, even for a kingdom or to please you, though I think you are as beautiful as the sun. At last, they reached the king's great city. And he came out to meet the princess, bringing magnificent presents. And the marriage was celebrated with great rejoicing. But Goldilocks was so fond of Charming that she could not be happy unless he was near her and she was always singing his praises. If it hadn't been for Charming, she said to the king, I should never have come here. You ought to be very much obliged to him for he did the most impossible things and got me water even from the fountain of beauty so I can never grow old and shall get prettier every year. Then Charming's enemy said to the king, it is a wonder that you are not jealous. The queen thinks there is nobody in the world like Charming, as if anybody you had sent could not have done just as much. It is quite true, now that I come to think of it, said the king. Let him be chained hand and foot and thrown into the tower. So they took Charming, and as a reward for having served the king so faithfully, he was shut up in the tower, where he only saw the jailer, who brought him a piece of black bread and a pitcher of water every day. 
However, little Frisk came to console him and told him all the news. When Princess Goldilocks heard what had happened, she threw herself at the king's feet and begged him to set Charming free. But the more she cried, the more angry he was. And at last she saw that it was useless to say any more, but it made her very sad. Then the king took it into his head that perhaps he was not handsome enough to please the princess Goldilocks. And he thought he would bathe his face with the water from the fountain of beauty, which was in the flask on a shelf in the princess's room where she had placed it that she might see it often. Now it happened that one of the princess's ladies in chasing a spider had knocked the flask off the shelf and broken it. And every drop of the water had been spilt. Not knowing what to do, she'd hastily swept away the pieces of crystal and then remembered that in the king's room, she had seen a flask of exactly the same shape, also filled with sparkling water. So without saying a word, she fetched it and stood it upon the queen's shelf, thinking none would be the wiser. Now, the water in this flask was what was used in the kingdom for getting rid of troublesome people. Instead of having their heads cut off in the usual way, their faces were bathed with the water and they instantly fell asleep and never woke up anymore. So when the king, thinking to improve his beauty, took the flask and sprinkled it upon his face, he fell asleep and nobody could wake him. Little Frisk was the first to hear the news and he ran to tell Charming, who sent him to beg the princess not to forget the poor prisoner. All the palace was in confusion on account of the king's death, but tiny Frisk made his way through the crowd to the princess's side and said, Madam, Madam, do not forget poor Charming. Then she remembered all he had done for her and without saying a word to anyone, went straight to the tower and with her own hands took off Charming's chains. Then putting a golden crown upon his head and the royal mantle upon his shoulders, she said, come faithful Charming, I make you king and will take you for my husband. Charming once more free and happy, fell at her feet and thanked her for her gracious words. Everybody was delighted that he should be king and the wedding which took place at once was the prettiest that can be imagined and Prince Charming and Princess Goldilocks lived happily ever after. So I really love this story and I just felt really guided to share it with you today. Uh, there's There are a couple reasons. One of the things that I think really, really like uh, lights me up about this story is that all the animals are really magical. And I'm someone, I have a very, very deep like heart and soul connection to animals. I always have. And, you know, when I say like animals are magical, I don't just mean it in the sense of like, oh, they're really sweet. Uh, you know, I, I, and, and they bring joy. I mean it in the sense like here, the animals, they, they literally become like, they become part of the quest. They, they, they have like almost like an otherworldly presence. And so there's also a line I want to draw your attention to. Uh, this is what the princess says to Charming after he gets the ring for her. 
truly charming, said she, you must be the favorite of some fairy or else you could never have found it. And so there really is a very strong connection between animals and the other world, animals and the world of fairy. And so I feel like this, uh, this story highlights that so beautifully. And I think that's, that's part of why I think I wanted to, to bring it through. Uh, I feel like in this world, I'm sure everyone who's listening, like, I think probably most everyone here loves animals, but I think that, you know, besides that love, if you look at animals, like throughout the ages and different legends, different myth, like, you know, we have animals who are very powerful, uh, but here in this story, there's something very humble about them. And when we are looking at the story, we have the carp, you know, the carp who is uh, you know, on on land that Charming has to return to the water. So we have this animal in a very helpless situation. And then our protagonist does an act of kindness. He, you know, he uses, you know, his, I feel like the thing with Charming is I feel like there is a genuine goodness to him. And so we're going to talk about this in a little bit more detail because I love, you know, going deeply into stories, uh, you know, and, and kind of like picking them apart. But for this part, I just want to share that, like, you know, Charming has kindness in his heart. He has kindness in his heart. And there's even a line, he thought maybe the fish would have been a good dinner, but he decides anyway that he's going to return her to the water. And so I just think that we're seeing the kindness of his heart. There is nothing he gets from this. This is selfless. This is not like, you know, when he goes to the princess, uh, you know, you know, and he's got this specific loyalty that he's got to the king. This is out of the goodness of his heart. Out of the goodness of his heart, he saves this fish's life. The same thing happens with the raven and then with the owl. There is nothing that Charming gets. There is nothing he gains. These are pure acts of goodness. These are pure acts of goodness. And I really feel like for me, it's it's recognition of the beauty of life. And uh, I, I think that I think of animals as as people, but you know, not everyone does. And that's why I love a story like this, because here, you know, charming, I feel like you can really see who a person is. Uh, you can see who they are by how they they treat those who who need their help. You know, like how, you know, when, when something is helpless, how do we respond? Do we, do we come into the situation with a warm and generous and open heart? And uh, I just feel like charming here. That's, that's so obviously when we are looking at a fairy tale, one thing that I don't always like as much is that like, there's that kind of sense of like the good are rewarded and the evil are punished. So you're kind of seeing here that the king is very vain. The king is very vain and, you know, everyone is just kind of flattering him and they're, they're, they're doing all these different things. Um, to be in his good graces, but none of it's really authentic. And it's interesting because the the only person who seems to have true, you know, devotion to the king is charming. So we're seeing these very positive aspects of him. We are seeing there's a devotional aspect to charming. You know, we are seeing that he's faithful. You know, the 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 uh the princess Goldilocks at the end says, We could have stayed, you know we could have stayed in my kingdom and you could have been king and we could have been happy. But he says no, because he's faithful to his king. So we're seeing here, these are, these are virtues. So we're seeing the virtue we have, you know, charming 
very kind, saving, you know, saving these helpless animals that, you know, otherwise, you know, you know, would have died without his help, you know, and I think this also speaks to the responsibility that we have as stewards of the earth. So that's also why I like charming. But, you know, then we are again seeing his, his loyalty, you know, his, his faithfulness, you know, to his king, which is another very admirable quality. So, one of the issues that I have with this story uh, is I feel like there's also a little bit of like loyalty to a fault, uh, you know, but I think that, you know, for, for the sake of, you know, for the sake of this tale, it's not really about that. It really is about, I think, Charming's, it's not just that he's, you know, faithful, you know, to the king, but in a story like this, it's really almost, it's trusting that there is an innate uh, goodness to the world, that there is kind of like a system of checks and balances happening behind the scenes in the universe, and that the universe is writing the scales. So I feel like that's kind of Charming's journey is he he surrenders, you know, he, you know, he has a very kind, very valiant heart, but he's also very obedient. And so this is a this is actually something that I personally do not see as a virtue, but Others would see it as virtue. I think in this time, like I said, this was written in the 1600s, Charming's obedience would have been seen as a virtue. And so it's just really interesting that we have this character, also a male character, who is truly, you know, I feel like, you know, demonstrating great virtue, um, you know, great love for his king. And it's that kind of, you know, I think what I also really love is uh, nothing is really impossible because the universe always finds a way. So here, you know, Goldilocks presents him with three impossible situations, things that he could never actually accomplish by himself. But because of the kindness of his heart, uh, you know, the, the universe, you know, life rewards him, uh, you know, and so there is that way. So I feel like this fairy tale is so beautiful because it reminds us, you know, to open up to possibility and remember that even when something seems impossible, the universe has the back door. The universe has the way in. And I really feel like what's also kind of coming through, I feel like this is an old, an old adage, uh, you know, especially in like Celtic tales, you see this across the board. Uh, and uh, even in Norse mythology, now they think about it, you have Thor's hammer and it's like, you know, only one who is worthy of the hammer, you know, may wield it. The same thing when you look at Arthur and uh, there's also there's the, the stone of destiny um, in Irish mythos, which basically it will, the stone will, you know, announce the name of the king based on he who is worthy. Same thing with, you know, you have Arthur and Excalibur, only, only he, or I should say she, maybe one day there will be a female Arthur who comes and pulls the sword from the stone. But so there's this idea of, of essential goodness, and so, of course, that we have like the checks and balances because the king isn't really a nice king. Uh, he doesn't actually have true love for charming and he doesn't really have that true love. And he's just ready to throw him in prison, you know, at a, at a moment's notice. So I think that there is this kind of sense in the fairy tale, uh, you know, at the end of the story that the king, you know, the king kind of gets what's coming to him. I also love the irony uh, that, you know, the, the king ends up like essentially meeting his end because of this water. Uh, you know, I just, I don't know. I, I feel like that's also a very classic fairy tale device uh, that it's almost like he, the, there, there's no one that goes out and kills the king. He literally, it's like, it's one of those things where it's his own vanity. It's his own vanity and his own, um, 
his own greed, really, that is his undoing. And uh, so I think, again, there's there's something here, like the reason Charming is so, uh, is so beloved is that there's a purity to him. There's a purity of heart. And so I feel like this is a, a tale that's really championing those who are pure of heart, pure of intention. Uh, but I think it's interesting here because it's almost like Charming in this tale, you know, he doesn't really have desires of his own. He's not really allowed to have desires uh, beyond, you know, he he is in service to his king and then like the woman who he believes is going to be, you know, the future queen. So, you know, he is he is obedient, but I, I do want to say that I think there is a beauty to this uh, because I feel like the the root of this kind of obedience, uh, if we look at it in a positive way, it is really meant to be like a devotional love. So it's a devotional love for one's king and queen. So I do think that that is actually a very beautiful thing. And, uh, you know, we, you know, I think we, we, we see things like this. Uh, there, this is because this is French. Uh, so for those of you who do not know, when you look at, for example, like the King Arthur, like the legends with all the, the tales of chivalry and romance, what actually kind of happened was the French really influenced the Arthurian legends. So uh, a lot of the, the things that we think of with like the knights in shining armor, that's definitely that kind of French romantic influence. And so here, there, so there's the, this kind of idea of courtly love. And also I would say with, with the French, like I, I feel like there's a nobility to charming, even though he's just, you know, he happens to be one of the king's men. He's definitely, you know, he almost feels like one of the king's knights. That's what this feels like. To me, this feels like a mini like King Arthur quest where he's got to go on a quest. And it's it, it really is a, a selfless quest. And uh, I don't know if the, the, the thing that I feel like where, where this story fails for me as like a bigger story is that the character himself doesn't experience, he hasn't really experienced growth per se over the course of the legend. Yet, you know, I think that he still goes on a great journey of trust and of faith. So it is really a beautiful story. And I hope that you will take something with you uh, from it because it's the kind of story that you don't need to necessarily think about it logically. You know, you can just really, you know, take, you know, take the magic, you know, take the magic with you. And uh, just know that this is, like I said, this is, uh, you know, a tale probably like, I think, I don't think people really tell this story very much anymore, about 400, about 400 years old. So I hope that, you know, we've gone back in time, you know, together and it's been fun for you because I also like to think about it from the lens of the writer. And like I said, let me try to find the name of this writer. So her name is, okay, I found her name. It's very long and I'm going to, out of great love and respect uh, for this writer, I'm going to try to say it. So it's like Marie Catherine de Jumel de Barneville, uh, Baroness uh, de Illinois. Um, so uh, I think she's also known as the Countess of Illinois. So, you know, she is a French author known for her literary fairy tales. So I could tell you a little bit more about her, but that's not really... Uh, I feel like that's not the point so much as we are honoring her creative contributions. And that's one of the beautiful things about writing and literature is that, you know, when we write something down, when we tell a story, you know, we, we're, we're recording it for posterity so that it ripples through the ages. 
And so I really feel that this is a story of virtue. It's a story of virtue. And it's also love because, and it's, and it's weird because even though on the surface, it seems like, you know, it, it's, I feel like it's, it's not a romantic love story in the conventional way. I really feel like it's charming's love for King and country, you know, that, you know, enables him to go on this great quest. And uh, then later, actually, he is saved, though, by Goldilocks. You know, he's saved by Goldilocks, who really, you know, felt that more human love for him. So I do think there's something really beautiful about that. And uh, I just, I wanted to, to celebrate this story because it is a lesser known tale. And I just feel like we are celebrating stories from around the world. And the French have brought just so much wonder and enchantment uh, to stories and literature throughout the ages. And I just really wanted to just like, to, to just really bring, you know, uh, awareness awareness to some of the magic that the the French fairy tales have brought into our lives. So I hope that you have enjoyed uh, this episode of Stories of Light. I know it's a little different than previous episodes, but really trying to bring in this great celebration of stories from all over the world. And I hope you will uh, join me again for next time. And I wish you a beautiful, wonderful rest of your day.